Well, uh, if you have your Bible this morning, uh, go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we are in our study of this letter. Uh, that's, the study's going to take us through the end of the year. If you haven't been with us before, if it's your first time, um, we, the way we do things here for, for this time in our service where we're, where we're studying God's Word together is we, uh, we take a, a big chunk of the Bible, usually a whole letter or, or what's normally called a book, uh, and we go through it verse by verse. We start at the beginning and go through all the way to the end. It's one way of submitting ourselves to it. Rather than just picking the parts we like best, we, we take what comes next. Um, and we're having to fall back on that principle a lot in 1 Corinthians because there's a lot of stuff in this letter that is really strange or just jarring to our ears. And if we really were just looking for the things that we already know we want to hear, uh, there's a lot in 1 Corinthians that would not make the cut. Uh, and this morning is, is probably another example of that. Um, it's an interesting it's an interesting passage. Uh, I'm pretty excited to get into it. I hope you will enjoy it as much as I have this week. Um, it gets at the issue, partly that, that, that we talked some about last week in looking at chapter 5. And I wonder how you would answer the question. If somebody asks you, who belongs in the church? Who belongs inside the church? Who's the church made up of? Who's it for? Maybe you've heard or even thought yourself, that churches are for those who have their acts together, right? For for the people who have figured things out, who don't have problems that people outside the church have. I mean, that's certainly a caricature of of churches, sort of self-righteous people who think they've got it figured out. Uh, Unfortunately, I think it's probably also true of a lot of churches, that they do portray themselves this way, think that way about themselves, the people in them think about themselves like this. Maybe you've even been part of one of those churches. And church has been hard for you to connect with because of that. Um, what I want to make clear here at the outset is that that is not the way the Bible talks about the church. Those who are inside the church, who belong there, those for whom the church exists, are not those who have their acts together, who have figured things out, who have freed themselves from the problems that people outside the church have. I wouldn't want you, if you were here with us last week, where we talked about Paul calling this church to put somebody out of the church because they weren't living as if they really believed in Jesus? I wouldn't want you to take away from that passage a wrong sense that the church is for those who aren't sinners and all the sinners got to stay outside or check your sin at the door. That's not the way the Bible pictures it. And this, the passage we're going to look at this morning kind of brings, us, brings that out with even more clarity. Uh, if the hypocrisy of the churches you've known before is a hang-up for you, I want to call you to think of the church differently this morning. Uh, think of the church more like a treatment center where people come to get well. More like a treatment center where people come to get well. More like a hospital for sinners. And if the sin of people in churches has been a hang-up for you, think about the the strangeness of a doctor working at a hospital complaining about all the sick people in that hospital that he has to see on a daily basis. Think about him sort of shocked at the idea that he might get infected by some of the disease that people bring into his hospital every day. You you work in a hospital. The hospital is for people with problems who want to get well. And that's the way the Bible pictures the church. Now, what this means and what our text takes us to today is a specific example of what happens when lots of sick people come together in the same place 
and live life in the same community. What happens is conflict. Conflict is basic to human experience, right? We all know it. Probably to some extent, we all sort of experience it pretty much on one layer or another all the time. There's almost always something in us with regard to somebody else who isn't sitting quite well. And Christians have conflict too. Christianity doesn't promise to keep us from conflict with each other. Um, What's different is not whether there's conflict in the church, but how that conflict plays itself out. How we respond to conflict is the difference. And how we respond to conflict shows a lot about what we love and about where we belong. Whether we belong inside the church or to the kingdom of this world. How we handle conflict is a great case study in where our citizenship is. And that's the way Paul frames this passage this morning. Now, the strangeness of this passage comes partly from not really knowing exactly what was going on, uh, partly from the, the fact that he's, he's talking about this legal system that isn't exactly the way ours works today. So there's some cultural gap here that we've got to try to bridge. Basically, though, what's going on is Paul's he's gotten a letter or some sort of verbal report from back, in, uh, from back in Corinth. He'd been there before. He'd founded this church. They were his friends. Now he's in a different city. And things have started unraveling in that church. And, and some people have come to him and brought word of, of a few things that are going on. And now he's at this place in the letter where he's just handling them one by one. And responding to things that he's heard. And so the beginning of chapter 6, where we are today, launches into a brand new issue, a new topic. And what he's heard is that somebody in the church has been wronged by somebody else in the church. And the way they've responded to it is to take them to court to try to get what they can out of this person. And once again, just like Paul's been doing all through this letter... Paul traces the reason for their behavior back to their failure to understand the significance of Jesus' cross. For Paul, everything about our life as Christians and everything about our community as a church flows from whether or not we understand the point of Jesus' cross, whether we've really taken it into ourselves so it changes how we see things and changes how we love. Uh, Paul is going to argue that the cross places them in a new kingdom where things just work differently when you have conflict with each other. The first paragraph we're going to look at condemns the way they have been handling their conflict. And it tries to show them that they're handling it in the way people who don't know Jesus handle conflict. And then the second paragraph takes them right back to the gospel, to the essence of the gospel's promises, and and means for them, I think, to see if this is what the gospel promises us, then, then you can't treat each other like you have been treating each other. A new era has been ushered in, and this is what it's going to look like. So what we want to do this morning is take these step one and step two. We want to look at, at, at how Paul confronts them to see what conflict looks like when your heart is owned, is controlled by the values of, of this world and its kingdom, and what would be different when you experience conflict if your heart is controlled by or ruled by the values of Christ's kingdom and the world to come. That's what we're doing this morning. Now, please stand with me uh, in honor of God's word as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we're to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So, 
If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the first few verses here, Paul is calling them out for handling their conflict like the kingdom of this world handles conflict. He opens, his le- he opens this chapter on a note of shock. How dare you go to law? And that before unbelievers. I don't have that same shock when I read this. I think maybe, maybe we're over-litigized. Uh, Would that be the word? We're litigious in our society in a way that, that, that probably even rivals, if not surpasses, the way they were back then. Um, and so it just seems really normal, you know, that you take people to court. Uh, figuring out why it's such a big deal to Paul, why he would start out with, how dare you, in this, in this note of shock, I think it's also tough because of where Paul goes next. He goes to this language about, I mean, don't you get it? You're going you're to judge the world. You're going to judge angels. And that language is not really part of our vocabulary. I don't think it really factors into how we think about what it is to be Christian, the sort of the privileges of the kingdom. Uh, on my pecking order, the, the fact that I'll judge angels isn't really high. Uh, I, I don't think about that very often. So Paul making that part of his argument doesn't connect with me very immediately. Uh, but basically, the sh- in short... Paul's upset because the way they're responding to conflict, to these grievances against each other, shows that their hearts belong to the kingdom of this world and its values and not the kingdom of Christ. I just want to walk through the details to show you where this comes from. That's the simple point. All right, there it is. You understand that sentence, you got it. I want to walk you through the details to show you where it comes from, though, uh, and, and to help us connect with it, because as different as this scenario may be from what comes natural to us, I think, without a whole lot of work, we're going to see ourselves brought under criticism here as well. We want to sit there and let that sink in before we go to the promises of the gospel in the next part of the, of the passage. So here's what's going on. The basic complaint that Paul has is that they're turning to courts outside the church to settle disputes among believers rather than handling them through the advice of people inside the church. Seeing why it's so bad that they're turning to, to what Paul calls the unrighteous or the unbelievers or those who don't have standing in the church I think seeing why that's so bad requires knowing something about these courts that they were turning to, what these courts were set up to do, how these courts operated. Once you understand what these courts were about, you'll see that they, by their very existence, were set up for things hostile to what the kingdom is about. Now, here's the, here's a distinction I want to make before I get too far into what these courts were set up to do. I want to make it clear 
what these courts did not have anything to do with and what Paul is not saying here. These are not criminal courts. And Paul is not saying that Christians, if crime is committed among them, should handle that in-house rather than reporting it to the authorities. And if you want to know what Paul thinks about criminal cases, go to Romans chapter 13. In that letter, he says, God set up the government for your good. They carry the sword, not in vain, but so that people might fear what it is to hurt each other. Paul believes in the criminal court system. And so, maybe you've heard, I mean, it's been, it's been in the, the news a lot in the last year, churches that have been accused, whether they've done it or not, of trying to cover up sexual abuse because it's an in-house issue among Christians. And we need to resolve it according to the principles of this passage rather than taking it to the police. That is wrong. It is, it is a, a, a severe misappropriation of this passage. Paul is not talking about that. Paul is talking about something else. Paul is talking about what happens when what he calls trivial issues occur in in, in the church body. He's talking about civil disputes. And in in his context, in in Corinth, the the civil court system was mostly about things related to two different types of grievance. Either one that affects your rights or your honor, your standing, your reputation. Maybe think of something kind of like libel today. Um, It's about standing up for your own and having yourself sort of vindicated in, in front of the public eye. Or it was about property disputes. So money or something that you own has been taken from you or your interests, your financial interests have been affected somehow and you go to the civil court to fix that. So those are the two main things that, that he's talking about here. And the thing about this court system set up for those purposes is that it was really, really corrupt and favored the rich and the powerful. Shocking, right? The deck was stacked against the poor. You went to court, to civil court in this day and age, whether whether that's true today, somebody else will have to say, but in this day and age, in the era of Corinth, you went to court because you thought you had the clout to win. You thought that the judge could be won over. And you thought that by going to court, you were going to advance your station one rung up that ladder. Right? You're going to climb one rung higher. Court was a means to self-advancement. You step on the head of someone else to boost yourself up the ladder once more. That's what these courts were for. They were notoriously corrupt. The point of the system was getting as much as you can. Right? Not just setting right what was done to you, but then on top of that, gaining as much as you can possibly get from this person. Uh, I'm not an expert on our civil court system now, but I mean, you just hear in popular culture, it's part of, part of the air we breathe that, that uh, when, you, when you come for a civil case, um, usually you're looking for some sort of financial damages, right? And often you're just looking to get as much as you can. And that was a parallel that I thought here. Like you, you kind of weigh jury selection on that basis. You weigh, uh, those who are being sued weigh whether or not they want to do a settlement or, or in order to avoid get, getting hammered if they, if they take it all the way to court. It's not so much even about the merits of the case, but takes into account like what kind of jurors are we likely to have and what is their occupation and are they male or female or what ethnicity do they belong to. What is is their background? What can we learn about their background that might help us to see whether or not they're going to be for our client or against our client? It's not the merits of the case. It's about what you can get, right? Not always. I don't mean to reduce it all to that. But, But there's that element at play, and that was certainly what was going on in this court system. It was about seeing how much you could milk the other person for. 
I think it makes sense of what Paul says late in the passage in verse 8. He's talking to the people who have been wronged and defrauded, and they're going to court to try to get restitution for it. But then he turns around and says to them, you yourselves wrong and defraud. I think he's pointing to the fact that you don't just go to get restitution. You go to get restitution and then some. You go to beat someone else and to elevate your own status. So you turn out wronging and defrauding the very person who wronged you. And here's, that's why Paul sees it as such a big deal. The, here's, here's what one writer, a historian of this period, he said, the aim, the aim of the ancient lawsuit was to prevail over another. And that usually involved an assault on the opponent's character to try to down a fellow Christian before and with the aid of those who don't worship God is completely inimical to Christian love. You see what's coming out, what's coming out here? What Paul is condemning? It isn't that they had conflict. He doesn't say you just should not have, you should not have taken this as a grievance. In this case, he apparently thinks the grievance was a serious one. What he's, what he's upset about is the way they're responding to conflict. That they're airing things out in secular courts. And the fact that they've chosen this way of handling their conflict shows that they've got the same motives that everybody else does. Their motives are dog-eat-dog world. You know, it's survive in advance. I've got to take what I can get when I can get it, and I've got, I've got to do that over and against you, right? It's me or you. That's the motive behind the court system of the time, and by going to those courts, that's the motive that, that these Christians are showing. And it shows that they're willing to use the same means. The means of this world, not Christ's world to come. The means of this world, the wisdom of this world, we've told, always favors the wise and the powerful. The wisdom of of Christ and his kingdom is for the poor and for the weak, where God's grace shows itself to be strong. But the wisdom of this world always leans towards those who have power, those who have advantage. And they are leveraging the wisdom of this world for all it's worth in their own attempts to climb that social ladder. And that's why Paul's upset. Because who they say they are, belonging to the kingdom of Christ, is not reflected in how they're behaving towards each other and the way they're responding to conflict. I, th- I think the kingdom idea is crucial here. You know, Paul uses that language uh, in, in verse 9. He talks about the kingdom. But I think it's what's behind a lot of the stranger details in verses 1 to 8. It's why he always says, you're, you're always raising an issue of them going to unbelievers or those outside the church. He's drawing a distinction between kingdoms and citizenships, Right? And you're, you're turning to those who have this set of values of this kingdom to resolve your disputes. It's why he talks about their status as the judge of the world and the judge of the angels to come. Basically, he's just citing what their citizenship gives them. Don't you realize that you belong to this kingdom now? That this is, this is your rights. These are your rights. These are your privileges. Why would you pretend like you're still a part of this kingdom? I don't know if you guys have, have been following this uh, this case in the news now, a, a, a murder trial, or soon-to-be murder trial, of Aaron Hernandez. He plays, uh, played football for the New England Patriots. He's an incredible uh, tight end, one of the best in the league. Um, and he was recently indicted for murder, uh, at least for one guy, maybe for a couple other guys a few months before that. And one of the things that always comes out in the commentary on this, I don't, I don't know the issues of the case, right? So I'm about to talk about what might be true. Uh, but don't consider this to be a court of law. I don't have any evidence against Aaron Hernandez. But I'm, what, what you hear, one of the things that really comes out in the commentary on this case is how shocking it is or how senseless it is that this guy, with all that he has going for him, would throw it all away to kill somebody who you know, really wasn't a threat to what he, held, what he had. You think about Aaron Hernandez. Even though he 
grew up, part, one, part of his story that's well known is he grew up on the streets, you know, hard upbringing, a lot of violence in his upbringing. That was the norms of that way of life, of his former world. But now he's in the world of international celebrity. Everybody knows who he is. He's got a contract for multi-years worth millions and millions of dollars. He's got a huge, posh, palatial estate in one of these fancy New England suburbs. The guy has the world at his fingertips. He belongs to this world, sort of. But people in this world, they've got their own hang-ups. It's dog-eat-dog, too. But they don't go around capping people who offend their honor or don't pay them back money that they're owed. I mean, they have their own ways. I'm not saying their world is better. I'm saying... It's clear, one of the things that comes out in the commentary is why is Hernandez still living like he's on the streets when he now belongs to this world of rarefied wealth and status? And it's because, I, mean, I don't think it's senseless at all. Without knowing if he's guilty or what's going on or what, what, for what drove him to kill the guy, it's not hard to imagine that ultimately his heart is still possessed by that world that he grew up in. That he's more the streets of the big city than he is the palatial estates of the New England suburb, that his methods, that his activities are still showing what's really inside him, that he's been taken out of that context in one sense, but his heart is still there. I think that's exactly what Paul is is condemning the Corinthians' behavior here for. You're supposed to be possessed by this new kingdom, a new kingdom in which you judge the world and you're hung up on trivial cases where you've been insulted, where somebody hasn't paid you what you're owed, their hearts are showing that, they're wor- they're, that they are set on the things of this world that pass away like a vapor rather than on the kingdom of Christ. And that's what Paul seeks to expose in them in the last several verses of our passage. In verses 9 to 11, Paul turns his attention where he always turns his attention in this letter, and it's to the cross. He always goes back there. He always says, what you're doing is wrong because it doesn't match up with what Jesus did for you. You're forgetting what's been done for you. Live in light of who you are and how well you've been loved. That's where he turns in verses 9 to 11. Once again, they're behaving like the unrighteous, like those that belong to this world, which is to say they're demanding that others treat them in the way that they think they deserve. What they're missing is that God... In, in their conflict with God, God has not treated them in the way that they deserved. Paul means to shake them up in verses 9 to 11. It is a warning. It is a real warning to them that their behavior looks like the unrighteous who belong to a different kingdom. And that kingdom doesn't end well. But it's also meant as a reminder to them. That look at what has been done for you by the power of the gospel. You are not who you were. So stop acting like you are. I want to walk through this quickly to show you where this is coming from. In verses 9 to 11, start with a list of sins. Paul says, don't you know that the unrighteous, those who behave like you are, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And then he lists them off. He begins with sexual sins. These were especially important in Corinth. Um, Corinth was famous for sexual looseness. And we're going to talk more in more detail about this particular category next week. It's where he goes next in this letter. Uh, so I'm not going to take any time now to explain why Paul and Christians in general believe that sex is so important as a sacred thing not to be messed with. Um, but the short answer is 
The kingdom doesn't belong to people who use their bodies guided nothing more than by personal pleasure, not by, their, not by meaning and purpose and intent and created, created purpose for, for, this, for this action. This is not a condemnation of sexuality any more than what he says later is a condemnation of having things because we shouldn't be greedy and want more. Any more than condemnation of drunkenness is condemning the ability to drink alcohol well and with, in a responsible way. What he's responding to, what he's condemning, those who the kingdom doesn't belong to are those whose desires are out of control so that they do only what they want and not, they don't behave in light of what God has, has intended by, by his creation of these good things. This sexual immorality and men who practice homosexuality and adultery, these are, these are sins that the Corinthians would have known from their own experience and, and these are sins that, that some of you know from your own experience. What about thievery? Maybe you feel like you're okay because your sexual past does not include the kind of brokenness and sin that's mentioned here. Maybe you think you're okay on the thieves line too. And maybe you are, if what he means here is armed robbery. But what about your taxes? Are you real honest on those? What about digital content? What's on your iPod? Did you pay for it? Should you have? What about greedy? The kingdom doesn't belong to the greedy. I think here, you know, if, if, if you imagine this as like a big room, room of people where you sit down when your name is called, I think we're all sitting down here, right? Because who among us has not been discontent with the things we've been given and wanted more? The kingdom, but the bottom line from this list is that the kingdom doesn't belong to people like us. The kingdom doesn't belong to us. To people who love what we love. But. But. Verse 11 says, You were washed. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. It means set apart. It means to be taken from one realm and put into another. You had this identity, now you have this one. You were justified, declared right, looked at by the judge of all that is who has created things by his own power and rules them in perfect holiness. You were looked at by this judge and you were declared to be pure. What you did is no longer what defines you, right? Such were some of you, but in the eyes of the only one whose opinion matters, you are pure and right once and for all. That's That's the message here beauty of this passage is that you are not what you were. Believe it, friends. This is a promise for you. This promise cuts across 2,000 years of history and language and culture and people and it's, and it's preserved for you and translated for you under the providence of God so that you, this morning, sitting right where you are, can hear it and believe it. You are not what you were if you trust the promise of God. Have you sinned with your body? Or maybe you're with your mind? And now you feel like garbage? Do you feel unlovable because of what you've done and cannot undo? 
Christ has died and Christ is risen so that you, in your sin, can be washed and sanctified, set apart for a new identity so that you can be justified, declared right in the eyes of the only one whose opinion matters. You are not what you were. That's the powerful message of verses 9 to 11. Now, now, let's put this truth to work. Because Paul goes here on purpose. He goes here because this statement of identity, of identification not with the old self, but with the new, not with who you were, but who you are in Christ, he's meaning for it to do work on their hearts and to change the way that they are treating each other. Remember, we're talking about the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't belong to people who own this past and love it and live for it. The kingdom belongs to those who have been transferred out of it, washed clean by Jesus and his love. And now, those who are in that kingdom, those who belong to it, those folks live differently. You are washed, so be clean. Be who you are. This is a deep clean, not a whitewash. It is a new tree bearing new fruit. So go bear fruit. And here's the specific context he wants to drive it in. Remember, it's about conflict. He goes here to warn them and encourage them that their behavior shows something other than who they should be. Remember who you are in Christ. Now go behave differently. Now, I think there's powerful, powerful encouragement for us if we take the message, the gospel message of verses 9 to 11, and then read verses 1 to 8 and the issue there in light of verses 9 to 11. How would it play out differently, this conflict, this grievance that somebody suffered inside the church? How would their their attempt to address it and, and, and get past it look different if they really understood the point of verses 9 to 11? I think that Jesus has set the table for us on this himself. One of my favorite passages from the Gospels is Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, verses 32 to 36. I shall back up to to verse 27. I just want to read this to you. Read Paul's words in light of Luke chapter 6, and then we're going to drive it in in light of this particular conflict that they're going on, that's going on in Corinth. How we, can, how we can learn from it. Here's what Jesus said. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love, this is where it gets real, all right? If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. 
and you will be, here it is, citizenship, new sonship, new identity. You will be sons of the Most High, children of the King. For he is kind and ungrateful, kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You hear nine through, verses 9 through 11 of our passage there? He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Such were some of you. So be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Now, in light of that principle, and we're going to drive it into this conflict issue in Corinth, how would it look different to take the principle of verses 9 to 11 and to apply it to verses 1 to 8? Now, I want to, I want to point the way there with a couple minutes here. I'll give you one principle and two different scenarios. All right, one principle... This is how it'll look different. It'll be dri- the, the situation will be guided by one principle, and then there are a couple different scenarios, even hinted at in this passage, that the ways it could play out in a conflict could play out differently. Then should play out among us when it does happen in our church. All right. Here's the principle: the primary motive in handling conflict among believers who have been changed from what they were into, into a new identity, a new citizenship. The primary motive for those believers in their conflict is love for the one who's wronged you. And that means that your goal in conflict resolution is not exactly justice, but healing. Healing of the relationship and redemption of it. And growth or the good of the person that you love. What it looks like for believers to have conflict with the, with, among themselves has to be driven by a motive of love for the one who's wronged you. And that motive should drive you not to seek justice, but healing in your relationship and the good of the one who wronged you. There's the principle. Now, there are a couple scenarios that this could play out in. Both of them are hinted at in our passage. Both of them will be part of our church life together. They, they will. Now, here's scenario number one. Let me say first, basically what I'm about to say is, is elaborating a little bit on one of the lines in our church covenant. So, so what it is to be part of, of Trinity is to have made some promises to each other that we're going to live our lives around each other in a certain way. And one of the promises of the covenant has to do with conflict. It says that, that because we, uh, as, as those who have, who have tasted the grace of, of Jesus, we're going to be slow to take offense and we're going to be quick to seek reconciliation. Those are two scenarios, two different things, two different ways that conflict could play out. Now, now one, I want to do quick to reconciliation first because I think that actually in this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is not saying that this grievance should not have been addressed. Right? We don't know what it was. Whatever it was was probably, he, he calls it trivial you know, compared to criminal court, but, but significant enough to, to, that he doesn't say you, should just, you shouldn't care about that. You know, just let it go. His problem is that they're seeking to, to resolve what's gone wrong through the wisdom of and the means of this other kingdom and its values rather than turning it over to or bringing into it someone who shares the value of Christ's kingdom. His problem is that they've gone to unbelievers who love the things of this world rather than going to believers to mediate who understand that under the wisdom of the cross it's not about getting all that you can. It's not about demanding justice. It's about restoration and healing and redemption. It's about love. So sometimes, among us, 
there are things that need to be resolved. They need to be labeled and called out and addressed. Sometimes there could be a pattern of unhealthy behavior holding back a relationship. And if your goal is love for this person and you want a healthy, healed relationship with them, then sometimes that means you've got to talk about it. You've got to put it on the table, label it for what it is, and try to move through it. Otherwise, you would just check out of the relationship, right? And that's not loving. That doesn't seek the good of the person. If, if there is an unhealthy pattern, it needs to be called out. And one of the ways we talked about last week, one of the ways we love each other well is to, is to highlight or bring to the surface sins in our lives that maybe aren't noticed by us. We need each other to be pointing those out. So sometimes that's going to be necessary. And if it's serious enough to be confronted, maybe it's serious enough to bring in a third party. If you do that, What you want to do, if you're guided by the kingdom of Christ, is make sure that third party sees things from the perspective of God's kingdom. It's not about finding someone, in other words, who's going to see things your way. Somebody who's going to be on your side, right? It's not about stacking the deck so the issue tilts towards you. It's about bringing someone in who understands the grace of the gospel and what it would look like for a relationship to get healed by that grace. The aim is never our own rights, but love for the person who's wronged us and wanting to see that person grow. So sometimes conflict in the church will look that way. Seeking the good or the healing of the relationship and the good of the person. Sometimes, scenario number two, if we are operating in conflict when grievance is done to us based on the principles or the values of the kingdom of Christ, then sometimes it means being slow to take offense. It means, it does mean letting things go. Now, here I think is what Paul's pointing to in verse, um, verse 7 of chapter 6. He's saying, he's, he's taking this one case where he's, he's upset that they've gone to the, to the secular courts rather than resolving it in-house. But now he's generalizing from it and saying, you know, really to go to a lawsuit at all, it's already a defeat for you. Look at what it says about you, that you can't get over it. He says, what it says about you is that you would not rather suffer wrong. Why not rather just be wronged? See, I think what he's getting at is that sometimes when, when we're driven by, when our primary motive is love for the person who's wronged us, and sometimes the most loving thing we can do for them is not to say anything at all and not be bothered by it. What, is not, what this does not imply is that you should just not do anything about it, just sort of sit on it, sort of hunker down and just grit it, grin and bear it, you know? No, that's a ticket to festering resentment that's going to explode and ultimately tank the relationship anyway. You know, if, you, if, if resentment is something you can't get past in it, it, it probably needs to be talked about, right? But I think a goal for us, especially if we encounter the grievances from other people, in light of the kingdom of Christ and the fact that God has not treated us in the way that we deserve, a goal for us should be just not to really let it register with us that much when someone doesn't, isn't as sensitive to us as we wish that, that, they, that they were. Because, you know, confronting somebody with something always does put a burden on them. You know, when they hear that they've wronged you, unless they just have no empathy at all, they're gonna re- that, that's going to hurt them to have known that they've hurt you, Right? And that is a burden to carry. Right? You don't just shake that off. So sometimes love for that person will mean just not making them pay the price for what they've done to you, which would be to carry around a sense of guilt or regret. Sometimes it means not asking them to pay that price. 
but just rather be wronged than put that burden on them. That's one way that love might look in conflict in the church. Ultimately, we aren't even scratching the surface of all the different scenarios that might come up, right? What we're trying to do is grab on to what it looks like for Christians to hurt each other and respond to that hurt in light of the values of the kingdom. And that does not look like the way this world does business. What it looks like is a motive of love overcoming our hearts so that we want the things that those who have tasted of the grace of Christ will want. We belong to his kingdom and not to ours. That is a way of handling conflict that glorifies God because there is nothing natural about it. And it's only possible by his grace. So we pray for it together now. Father.